Now, the WBBM Noon Business Hour. It's 12.03 on Wednesday afternoon, April 13th. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. I'm Rob Hart. Market observers are looking at the ebb and flow with an eye on the possibility of a peaking bear market. We'll cover that in our next segment. But right now, the producer price index for March shows the biggest gain on record. We're joined by Brian Westbury, chief economist, First Trust Advisors, based in Wheaton. Brian, thanks for joining us today. The uh, producer price index for the month of March uh, rising 11.2% compared to March of 2021. It's a 1.4% uh, rise uh, month over month, and uh, it's uh, an eye-popping number and a record-breaking number, but we have to uh, add the caveat this number goes back to November of 2010. Yeah, yeah, Rob, they, they changed the way they report producer prices uh, back then. So, uh, in reality, if we kind of look at all the ways we've reported inflation right now, inflation uh, numbers, whether it's consumer prices or producer prices or commodity prices, they're all going up faster than they have really since the late 1970s, early 1980s. And uh, the 1970s were an era of what we called stagflation. Uh, that was high unemployment, slow growth. That's the stag part. And then the inflation part is we had 10, 11, 12 percent inflation back then. And this is the first time we've seen that kind of inflation since then. And just to add one uh, flavor to it, I believe it, there's no doubt that events in Russia and Ukraine, Eastern Europe are having an impact on prices. There's no doubt that the supply chain problems coming from the shutdowns uh, because of COVID are adding to inflation But I think the number one cause of this is that the Federal Reserve just printed too much money uh, back in 2020 and 2021. uh, And that means the value of our currency, what it will buy in terms of goods and services is falling. We just printed too much currency. And the the question now, though, is uh, you, you see the producer price index, and this is what businesses are paying for their goods they will eventually right. sell to the consumer. So this will be felt by the consumer somewhere downstream. Does this lend credence or take evidence away from the argument that was presented yesterday that maybe we have hit peak inflation? Yeah, I think because of the events in Ukraine, we probably have. This caused a spike. But underneath this, because of that uh, money growth, the Federal Reserve's policies that I was talking about, the inflation rate is still way above what we're used to in the last 30 or 40 years. So I'm I'm looking at, you know, roughly 5% inflation, maybe 6 uh, after everything settles down with Ukraine and with supply chains. But we have higher inflation right now for longer, I believe, than most people think. Uh, so we're not going back to 2%. Uh, I think that's a pipe dream, uh, and, and the interest rates are going to be higher over the next few years uh, than we've been used to. 
Thanks for joining us, Brian Westbury, Chief Economist, First Trust Advisors based in Wheaton. Coming up, a look at the financial markets through the lens of a contrarian. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. While the markets are up today, there's a possibility they can approach their early March low and maybe even surpass those levels. We're joined now by Mark Hulbert, investment columnist for The Wall Street Journal, Barron's, and MarketWatch.com, based in Washington. Mark, thanks for joining us today. The markets uh, so far in 2022 have been turbulent, uh, to say the very least. And uh, even with all of that volatility, uh, they're substantially higher than they were in March of 2020. Um, does that suggest that the markets are still overvalued and there's some uh, considerable room on the downside? Well, I do think that they are overvalued according to any of a number of measures that look at uh, the stock market prices relative to earnings and book value and cash flow and dividends and so forth. In fact, almost according to almost any of those indicators you might choose, we're probably more overvalued now than at almost any other time in U.S. history, except for perhaps a year ago, as you mentioned. We're we're, uh, almost as high or higher as we were a year ago, depending on which market average we look at. So I do think there is that downside risk. And then uh, when when we're talking about uh, ending and entering unprecedented territory, I mean, uh, when it comes to inflation, uh, we're talking about 40-year highs, and that means uh, if you are a consumer who remembers that era, you are probably in your 50s or 60s, and if you're younger than that, this is an entirely new experience. At the same time, for investors, uh, a higher interest rate environment is also uh, uncertain ground, because back in the go-go 90s, the federal funds rate was 5%. Uh, now it's just a tick off zero and everybody's panicking. <laughs> That's such a good point. I think in general that the markets have yet to really reflect all of this uncertainty and potentially very bad news that could be coming. And that's one of the reasons I tend to think that uh, the market has yet to see the low uh, of whatever weakness you call it, whether it's a correction or bear market. And uh, it turns out that uh, one of the additional reasons for believing that there is that downside risk is that everyone seems to be more eagerly ready to declare that the bottom is in rather than say that there is greater downside risk. So anytime the market is down and when you see some this or that sentiment indicator that indicates there's a lot of pessimism, instead of really taking that pessimism to heart, people say, oh, good, we have so much pessimism. That means all the bad news is out there. And I just don't see it. As you mentioned, two of them, you mentioned interest rates and inflation. You can add overvaluation. You can add what might happen in Ukraine. And you get uh, quite a bit of reason to believe that there is some downside risk here. And, and there have been wild rides in the stock market in the past, but it seems like we're, we're that it's a different era for the stock market in terms of the number of participants, the number of people who are active investors, the number of people who follow the markets, the number of ways in which you can follow the markets on a daily basis. Um, and and you, you turn on the TV or you look online and, and green number up, red number down. And if people react to that as opposed to the underlying factors, uh, would that spur a more hands-on response by regulatory agencies in the Federal Reserve? Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. That adds yet another level of uncertainty. I mean, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin in particular, 
uh, is one area in which uh, the uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission, as well as the Fed and the Treasury Department, are looking at adding some additional uh, regulations to bring them into the same set of uh, ground rules that the rest of us play in the stock market or the bond market or our savings account. And so that is just yet another level of uh, another category, really, of uncertainty that we all have to face. Well, thanks for joining us. Mark Hulbert, investment columnist for The Wall Street Journal, Barron's, and MarketWatch.com, based in Washington. Always an enjoyable conversation. Coming up next, J.P. Morgan Chase is putting a number on the financial impact from sanctions against Russia. The best daily deal in Chicago, the WBBM Noon Business Hour. J.P. Morgan Chase has issued its quarterly earnings report, and it reflects fallout from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We welcome in Dick Beauvais, financial strategist for New York-based Odeon Capital Group, uh, based in Tampa, Florida today. Dick, thanks for joining us today. Uh, let's talk about the immediate financial hit from the uh, Russian sanctions. That's a, a price tag that touches almost half a billion dollars. Yeah, but it's only going to hit one or two banks. In other words, uh, I think Citigroup, when it reports its earnings, will probably take a hit of $1.5 billion. Um, And once you take the hit, it's over with. It's just not something that's going to impact earnings going forward. So I I, I think that, uh, you know, it's awfully uncomfortable to have to do that. I think it's uh, unpleasant, but uh, I don't think it's uh, a meaningful factor, you know, for for the stocks or, or, or where the companies might be going in the future. And uh, the the big banks are coming down off of some historic performances a year ago, so it's uh, almost uh, natural to assume uh, that there was going to be some backing off from some of the eye-popping numbers that they reported uh, earlier this year and last year. You're right, uh, but there, there are two factors in specific. Number one, the capital markets businesses, were, you know, which would be trading, investment banking, uh, issuing uh, common stock, those businesses were very strong last year, and they were very weak uh, in the first quarter of this year, and are likely to stay weak, in, in my view, for the next uh, couple of quarters. The second area was the loan loss provision. Uh, because of changes in accounting rules, which you know are not really relevant to the operation of the company, but as a result of those changes in accounting rules, uh, the banks took a major reduction in their loan loss reserves in the first quarter last year, and they showed, or at least J.P. Morgan, we don't have anybody else, J.P. Morgan showed an increase in that uh, loan loss provision this year, and I think that you'll see other banks are doing the same. So I think in general, uh, you're not going to see very impressive earnings for banks at the present time, number one. And number two, I think you've got to be very cautious about buying banks at this point, because I think uh, I, I at least am in the camp of believing that we're headed for a recession, number one. And number two, I think that uh, we're going to see increases in loan loss reserves at all banks uh, when they report tomorrow and for the rest of uh, next week. How does the uh, projected uh, hike in interest rates, how will that impact uh, not only just uh, J.P. Morgan, but uh, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, and Morgan Stanley? Well, yeah, they all benefit from it. They're all what they call asset-sensitive banks. By that, I mean they, they see their net interest income rise when interest rates rise. And the reason for that is because they increase the price of the loans to their customers but they don't increase the uh, yield that they give to the depositors. So they get a widening of the spread between what they're charging and what uh, they have to pay, and that creates a a positive impact on their earnings. The negative impact that they get is that when interest rates go up, 
the value of the assets that they hold go down. And because roughly 95% of what they hold in assets are financial instruments, they're seeing an erosion in their real book value while they're reporting an increase in their in their net interest income. Now, the way that works for the stocks is in the beginning, nobody cares about the fact that the real incomes are dropping. However, if it continues, the multiples on bank stocks come down pretty dramatically uh, because of the decline in the value of their assets. Dick Beauvais, financial strategist with Odeon Capital Group in Tampa, Florida. Still ahead in Personal Finance Wednesday, making sure you're prepared to handle a money emergency. This is Chicago's all-news station, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Good afternoon. I'm Rob Hart. These are the top stories on News Radio WBBM. The Centers for Disease Control extends the federal travel mask mandate. A special report coming up from CBS News. In Personal Finance Wednesday, implementing a strategy to ensure you won't get caught short by a financial emergency. And the first crypto-backed payment cards are now being introduced in Europe. WBBM Business, the markets are higher. The Dow is up to 261 points. The NASDAQ is up 237. The S&P 500 is up 40. WBBM Sports, the Cubs and Pittsburgh Pirates are underway right now. The Pirates lead the Cubs 3-1 in Pittsburgh. We have 65 degrees right now in Chicago under cloudy skies. Going up to 72, it's 1231. CBS News special report. The CDC says it will extend its nationwide mask requirement for passengers on planes and public transit through May 3rd. It cites the need to assess the impact of a new COVID subvariant BA2 that's driving most COVID infections in the country. This man's at Washington Reagan National. They should have gave the people a choice whether they wanted to wear it or not from the beginning. More from transportation correspondent Errol Barnett. Most Americans favor an extension. A recent survey finding 6 in 10 support staying masked while traveling. The industry, though, sees things differently. We need to remove these mandates. Roger Dow is president of the U.S. Travel Association, which, along with three other industry groups, cite economic costs for pushing the White House to end travel mask rules for all. We have an unpredictable virus with many variants, but we're seeing again and again these variants are less severe. The requirement was set to expire next Monday. CBS News Special Report. I'm Matt Piper. It's 1232 on the noon business hour. Markets are in plus territory today. We're joined by Shah Galani, Chief Investment Strategist, MoneyMorning.com. Shah, thanks for joining us today. Before we talk about the uh, uh, the, the jump in, uh, in stock market activity today, let's talk about the decline at the end of yesterday's session. It started off strong and then uh, went in the negative territory. Uh, what weighed down the markets in the afternoon yesterday? I think the reality was uh, investors realized, uh, though the numbers, the CPI numbers, both headline and core, were high, uh, that uh, it's not all rosy. That's not, we haven't seen peak inflation, and that perhaps there is more inflation to come, and that means that the Fed is likely to continue on the path that they've laid out, which is higher rates um, for some time to come. Earnings season is now underway, and while there's a great deal of uncertainty about uh, uh, corporate America as a whole and how uh, higher inflation and the war in Ukraine uh, will impact uh, their results for the first three months of the year, uh, the first companies to report uh, the figures they were showing, uh, not all bad. Not all bad is relative. Um, I I look at J.P. Morgan's uh, numbers 
this morning. And it says to me uh, they had set aside more in terms of reserves, um, guided somewhat negatively in terms of expectations for inflation and uh, because of the war in Ukraine. And, and that was a bit of a negative, though their numbers were good. I expect a lot of companies reporting this period to have stellar numbers. The question really, Rob, is are CEOs and CFOs going to guide negatively forward with with the great unknowns being the war being uh, the price of energy and uh, inflation what will the fed do likely raise more than expected and it's hard for me to imagine uh, management guiding positively into an unknown future so i think that's really what investors are going to key in on at least should key on is what are what are management teams going to say in terms of forward guidance for for their companies for the next quarter and through the rest of the year Delta Airlines uh, reporting, and even though they uh, lost money uh, overall in the uh, first quarter, especially uh, during the Omicron surge of January and February, uh, they said they had a profitable March and that uh, the rest of the year uh, looks favorable, that uh, bookings are taking place at a furious pace and uh, passengers are willing to pay uh, prices that uh, keep up with the rising price of jet fuel. And they're going to continue to have to pay up because uh, they are passing along those uh, higher input costs. And there is a problem with jet fuel. There's a shortage of it. So that means costs are probably going to go higher. And that means uh, fares are going to go up. Uh, There's a lot of pent-up demand for travel. Uh, Everywhere I've traveled, and I've been traveling quite a bit the last few months, every airport is busier than I've ever seen. Uh, airlines are packed. There are no seats. Um, you're waiting for a seat if you're if you're in line and you you know post too late to try and get on a flight, uh, you're in trouble. But that doesn't mean that profitability is going to come soaring back. I think if you look at the these uh, airline stocks in particular, the travel and leisure stocks, they have been on an up and down ride that is is head spinning. And I don't think it's time just yet to get into them. That it's been a difficult trade uh, whether you're buying or you're shorting. It one way. Of other investors are getting crushed on, on those types of stocks. So I think the jury's out on, on when the coast is going to be clear for a long-term investment in the travel and leisure stocks. Head spinning is a great way to uh, put the uh, various swings in the economy right now. Thanks for joining us, Shah Galani, Chief Investment Strategist, MoneyMorning.com. Coming up next in Personal Finance Wednesday, preparing to handle unexpected financial adversity. Loaning useful information each weekday. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Hey, it's Personal Finance Wednesday, sponsored by Thrivent. And this afternoon, we're helping you prepare for a money emergency. We welcome in Mark Horner, Wealth Advisor, Fairhaven Wealth Management, based in Wheaton, Illinois. The website, fairhavenwealth.com. Mark, thanks for joining us today. Uh, A financial emergency can take many forms. Uh, Let's talk about some of them, Uh, uh, ranging from uh, an an unexpected hospital bill, a giant repair bill, to uh, an, an income earner in a household losing their job. Yeah, those are those are. Uh, I'd say you hit the top three, Rob. So uh, as I guess as the saying goes, life uh, life happens, and so as part of your uh, as part of your financial planning, trying to plan for the unexpected uh, makes uh, can, can make a can make a lot of sense. So rules of thumb around uh, emergency uh, emergency savings accounts are going to be something like maybe three to six months of your living expenses. If one of the, one of those things happened that you, that you just, that you just listed that is easily accessible, uh, and reliable. So it's not going to fluctuate in value. 
that, that you can look to if, if one of those circumstances arise. Now, I would say other rules of thumb say that it should be invested in a, quote, high-yield savings account. I'm not aware of such a thing in the, in the current environment right now. So you might, you might just have to kind of take that one on the chin and just have it in a savings account that might not be earning a whole lot of interest, but that you can put your hands on if you need to. And how do you move money over from an investment account uh, into a cash account uh, in such a way that you don't uh, uh, incur penalties or taxes or other, other types of fees? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great point. Uh, uh, and, and so one of the things to remember is we're not talking about retirement accounts, whether that be individual retirement accounts or IRAs, Roth IRAs, company retirement plans. Uh, at work, typically you're going to be associated, you're going to have taxes and or penalties associated with accessing money in any of those accounts. So we're talking about savings accounts or, or taxable brokerage accounts. There's a couple of different ways to think about funding them. One might be just like you save for retirement, you, you contribute money on a monthly on a monthly basis. Maybe you move a little bit of money each month from your checking account over to your savings account. We are big fans of automating things. So that might be fifty dollars, a hundred dollars, whatever whatever the budget whatever the budget can afford. Another idea is to, when you do your year-end portfolio review, if the stock market, your investment portfolio has been kind to you and uh, there's, some, there's some gains there, you might think about taking some of those gains out of your investment portfolio to help to help fund that emergency emergency savings uh, savings account, so there's a few different a few different ways to get that get that done. And also uh, resist the temptation to just have a, a big envelope or a box full of cash uh, laying around your house. I mean, even from a practical point of view, uh, if one of your emergencies is a sudden home repair and a tree falls on the room in which your cash is located, and uh, it's spread out or damaged in some way, your cash is gone. And there's not a whole lot of uh, ways to make up for that because uh, insurance covers very little. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm a fan of carrying cash in my pocket. Uh, I don't have, we don't have uh, stashes of cash in, in, uh, hidden, hidden around the house anywhere. I would say that also goes for uh, the crypto world, we don't want to, we don't want to look to Bitcoin as uh, as our source of emergency funding. So so yeah, th- this should really be in a in a conventional in a conventional account. And then I should you know I should, would also uh, mention that if you're not able to to contribute to uh, an emergency fund, so you don't want to ignore saving for retirement, saving for college, saving to buy a new home, all those other things that might be an element of a financial plan. A go- a solid second choice could be a low cost. Uh, low-cost line of credit, so that might be maybe a maybe a home equity line of credit, maybe a, a line of credit secured by uh, by your portfolio. Uh, debt is going to be the second source that you want to go to, not the first. But but again, recognize not everybody's in a position to be saving extra on a monthly basis. That's a uh, an access to a, a low-cost line of credit is a solid second choice. Well, thanks for joining us. Mark Horner, Wealth Advisor, Fairhaven Wealth Management, based in Wheaton. The website, uh, the website fairhavenwealth.com. Join us at this time tomorrow for Technology Thursday. And still to come, the first crypto credit cards are being launched in Europe. Discussing the news affecting your money. 
The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Crypto lender Nexo is teamed up with MasterCard for what's being called the world's first crypto-backed payment card. Let's learn more from Ted Rossman, industry analyst, creditcards.com, based in New York. Ted, thanks for joining us today. This is being unveiled in Europe, and chances are, Ted, the rest of the world is uh, watching to see how this uh, uh, crypto-backed credit card is adopted. Yeah, that's right. I mean, really, the problem they're looking to address here is the clunkiness of spending crypto. And we talked before about crypto rewards credit cards from the likes of BlockFi and Gemini, where you spend U.S. dollars and then you get rewards in the form of crypto. This new card from Nexo is a bit of a twist on that, because what you're really doing is spending with a credit line that's backed by your crypto assets, but you're not literally spending in drips and drabs for every little transaction in crypto, because that's really difficult. Like, are you getting a good value? What happens with capital gains? It's basically this credit line that eventually you settle up at some point, but you're not trying to calculate the valuation every time you buy a cup of coffee, basically. So does this mean, uh, when you say settle up, does this mean uh, you get a, 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 a bill and a statement uh, every month for your crypto-backed credit card, or is uh, there some sort of accounting later down the road? You know, it's a little bit unclear how it's going to work. They're talking about a line of credit backed by your crypto holdings with Nexo, because they're one of these crypto wallets. And it's an interest-free line of credit as long as your loan-to-value is no more than 20%. So basically, they are looking out for people that have a lot of crypto on their platform. They're talking about no minimum payments. It's not totally clear when you pay it back. Um, but you know, I, I think something like a monthly payment cycle might make sense. I think the real hard part about spending crypto directly is – are you getting a good value at that moment in time? And that's a capital gains nightmare. Like imagine selling stocks or bonds every time you buy something and having to figure out like what your gain or loss was. That's one of the things that's held people back with crypto cards. But I think this line of credit backed by your crypto is a workaround. And then very quickly, uh, what about uh, spending in dollars and then getting your rewards in crypto and some sort of uh, crypto cash back card? That's more of what we've seen to date with that BlockFi rewards card that's 1.5% cash back in crypto on everything. Gemini is up to 3% on certain categories like dining with a flat rate of 1% on most purchases. I think rewards makes more sense. It's easier and it's free money, basically. It's like gambling with house money. Ted Rossman, industry analyst, creditcards.com, based in New York. Thanks for joining us today. You'll find past programs and later today a podcast of this hour at WBBMNewsRadio.com and the Odyssey app.